week, this was your second. I hope you gave me a chance to tell you the other side of the coin. So roughly 16, 17 years ago, I was an intern at a church in Colorado, and um, I got tasked with going to Pearl Street in Boulder, Colorado, to interview people about heaven. If you've never been to Colorado, it's a fantastic experience. Pearl Street is an outdoor mall where you will find literally anything and everything the world has to offer. It is a hodgepodge of the world. So literally, you could be walking along, and there are uh, Christians all over the place very, holding Bible studies or prayer meetings. There are people literally with their crystals out, praying to their crystals, people rolling all kinds of tarot cards or whatever. And there's people, at least at one point, probably even more so now today, like you could find people smoking marijuana um, on Pearl Street even before it was legal. I mean, it is just an interesting, interesting place. It's like a hodgepodge of the world thrown in one place. And this is where they wanted me to go film this video. So the goal was to go around and ask this question. Do you believe in heaven? And if so, what does that look like? In many fascinating conversations that day, my favorite one was this, this conversation with a girl who looked like she just came out of Woodstock and she had a cat in one hand and a cigarette in the other. I think it was a cigarette. And we had a fascinating conversation. And here's how the conversation went. By the way, that's in no way judging people who like cats. Um, <laughs> even though I'm a dog guy myself. So, Fascinating conversation. Do you believe in heaven? Yes, I do. Great. Could you tell me what that looks like? She said, well, I believe that when you die, you will go to your own kind of private little island. And she went on to describe this as going to be a beautiful paradise. I said, is this like all by yourself? Well, no. Well, who else is with you? Well, my family, friends, and loved ones. Everybody I want to be there will be there. And there opened the most fascinating conversation ever. So I started to poke a little on camera and just say, so tell me about this paradise that you're going to. Like your family, your friends are there. Is, uh, is there anybody there you don't want to be there? Like, you know, that person has just annoyed you. You just can't stand them your whole life. No, they're not welcome. Okay. What if they're best friends with like, say your sister? It's like, it's your sister's husband. You just can't stand the guy. Is he allowed to come? No. Wasn't that sad for your sister? It doesn't matter. This is my eternity. Oh, so is this like a multiverse island? Is she like on some other island also with her husband and all her friends minus everybody you don't like? I don't know. I haven't thought about it that far. Okay. All right. Back off. Clearly, I was touching on a nerve. I was kind of irritating her and her cat. Anyway, um, (laughs) It was so fascinating. I had more than one conversation just like that that day. Here's what we know about Americans. Many of you visiting today, this may be you. Most people in America believe in something spiritual. Most people in America, the vast majority, believe in a higher power. And most people in America believe, hey, you could call him whatever you want. Allah, Buddha, you can call it eternity or bliss or paradise or Jesus or even Yahweh. You can call him whatever you want, but it's pretty much all saying the same thing. The problem is, as Christians, the Bible doesn't allow us to believe that. It sounds great, but the Bible doesn't teach that. And the Bible does have some definitive things to say about heaven and eternity. Now, what I want to do today is look at some of those things. And I just want to tell you straight up front, this is easily, easily a two-plus-hour message, and I don't have time for that, obviously. Though some of you may want to sit around longer, we aren't going to go there. I do, in the web um, and on the app, I believe they've Apple actually pointed to the website, to our blog, I've listed books and sermons and resources and things you can go and pursue this as deep as you want. We're going to live in the book of Revelation today. That's where we are. And so there's plenty other texts we could look at. I'll reference some of them. I don't have time to look at all of them. We're just going to look at the major components of heaven and eternity as best as we know how. But before we can look at eternity, we need to look at what went wrong. 
So if you go all the way back to the very beginning, the book of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. And this is relevant for what I want to tell you today, so don't tune out. God creates the heavens and the earth and everything that fills it. And after each thing he creates, he says this powerful phrase. If you know it, say it with me. And it was good. So God looks at his creation. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He actually creates the apex of his creation, man and woman. And it tells us man and woman are made in his own image. It's different than the birds. It's different than the animals. It's different than the planets and the oceans and all the things that would fill the oceans. It's different than all those things because it's Man and woman were made in his likeness. And at the end of that, he says, and it was very good. And then something went wrong. In that garden that God placed Adam and Eve, it tells us over and over and over again in Genesis 2 and 3 that they were naked and unashamed, naked and unashamed. It's trying to help us understand something. There's a purity there. There's an innocence there. And it's not like the innocence of your baby when your baby's born. I get it. I've had three of them. They're very innocent until they're about two. And before they learn Mama and dad, dad, they learn no. An innocence paradise is suddenly lost. It's because in every baby that's ever been born in the history of the world lies something that we call as Christians the sin nature. Some people like to call it depravity. I don't care what you want to call it. The whole idea is we have a bent towards evil. And what went wrong was Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And I don't have time to tell you that whole story. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, something happened. And we've called these things for years the curse. And I've wondered to myself, I don't know this, if it really was a curse from God, like a curse where God says, hey, I'm going to punish you, or if it was just a statement of reality. Because you have chosen to rebel against me, because you did not trust me when you should be trusting me, because of that, these things are going to happen. Men, now, the ground that you were working, and Adam worked, by the way, before sin, the ground that you are working will no longer produce for you easily. It will be hard work. It will be laborious. And I would say this isn't just an agricultural principle. Men, have you noticed no matter how hard you work, your jobs don't ever fulfill the way you thought they would? Ladies, he says, you will now have pain in childbirth. This thing that should have been glorious, and it is glorious, it comes, glorious, it comes with much suffering. Have you ever looked at animals, and while there's always exceptions to this, for the most part, by and large, when animals give birth, it's fairly quick and it's fairly painless. And women, if you've ever seen a zoo or a farm, you, you should be jealous because you should think that's how it was supposed to be. He also tells women, from now on, you'll, you'll long for the authority that your husband has over you. And part of that just comes with the jealousy that's in your heart, and some of that comes with so many men abusing their spiritual position as leader to hurt or abuse or do evil things. And then God curses the snake, the serpent, Satan himself, and tells him, one day, one day I'm going to send the son of this very woman and he's going to crush you. We know that that was Jesus. And then he says this, and from now on, in dying death, and that's literally how the Hebrew reads, in dying you will surely die. And there's all kinds of theological questions we could ask there, but what I want to get to is the next one, the last one, and perhaps the worst part of the entire curse. Genesis chapter 3, now verse 22 says this, then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. Innocence is lost, in other words. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. And I'm about to read something, but I want you to see this. 
There is in the garden a tree. There's a first tree. It's that tree of, hey, don't eat from this tree. And then there's this tree, the tree of life. And there's something about this tree that's special. There's something about this tree that's supposed to do something. If they eat the tree of this, they'll live forever. Now, of course, this could be symbolic or metaphoric and not literal. But there's something there. And if the one tree that leads to the knowledge of good and evil is literal, then why would we assume this one is not literal? I tend to think there was a real tree, and there's something about the fruit from this tree that does something profound. But God is saying, we better keep Adam and Eve who are now fallen away from this tree because if they eat it, they'll never die. Is it possible that Adam and Eve were never intended to die? Is it possible that Adam and Eve were intended to eat this fruit and forever find the healing that they need that would last to life? I don't know. And again, I, I'm not God, clearly, in case you haven't figured that out. I don't know of a way whereby God created a physical earth like the one that we live in whereby you couldn't ever be hurt. I'm not talking about sin. Sooner or later, you trip and fall. Sooner or later, you're climbing a tree, you maybe fall out. There are certain laws of nature that dictate certain things happen. It's the law of cause and effect. But could it be that God had a system built in, a tree that produced fruit, and this fruit did something profound. It healed the body, and not just healed the body once, but healed it forever and eternally. Fantastic book of fiction. Ted Decker's books, Black, Red, and White. Highly recommended if you love fiction. Fascinating, as he kind of has some fruit in there and is pointing to this concept. But God is saying, we can't let them eat this fruit. Why? Because they'll live forever. Well, why is that a problem, God? Because if they eat of this fruit in this condition, they'll live forever as sinners. If they eat of this tree how they are now, they'll be eternally rebellious. So then he says this in verse 23. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword and flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, God was showing mercy even in the garden. And you may go, how's that mercy? He just kicked him out of the garden and said, go figure it out. Go work hard now. No, see, this is mercy. Because God, as I'm about to show you, God has every desire to redeem his creation. He could have in that moment set a fire from heaven, destroyed Adam and Eve and everything there, and just said, let's just go ahead and start over. Things get so bad that it's only a few chapters later. He has to do that anyway, except for with water. And he ends up just starting over, but he starts over with broken, rebellious, frail humanity. Noah and his family. And it's not long after the flood that Noah gets totally wasted and he blows it anyway. And the whole point is God has been on a plan of redemption. Let me just show it to you in the very last book. This is the first book. Let me show you the last book. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, and on each side of the river grew a what? Tree of Life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. Is this literal? Is it metaphoric? I don't know. But let me just ask this as we dig into today's message. 
What if the original creation before the fall, before sin, what if the original creation, the earth, was intended to meet all our needs? You ever notice how we can create certain medicines and we could take certain things, and it depends on whether you land on the medical side or the natural herbal side. I don't really care, but have you noticed all those things are really in some way coming from the earth, that the earth was intended to take care of us, but you ever notice how they don't fully seem to be able to do it? Like maybe there's something broken, like it helps, but it doesn't heal. It gets us close, but not all the way there. We still die. We still suffer. We still have pain. What if the original intention was that it wouldn't look like that? What if the original intention was that the creation would fully meet all of our needs? Kind of this glorious, harmonious, not avatar-like thing where we worship the creation. We worship the one who made the creation and God himself. So let me ask you this question. Genesis chapter 3, there's a tree of life. Genesis, or Revelation chapter 22, there's trees of life. By the way, fascinating. 12 crops, one for each month. 12 times 12 is what? Simple math, 200. Exactly, everybody knew that. It's 144. I keep telling you numbers in Revelation are symbolic. They mean something. There's more to it than the number. Remember the 144 anywhere else in Revelation? 144,000? Could John be trying to make a point about the fact that the redeemed have their needs met by the Redeemer in eternity? We'll get to that. So now I want you to come with me. What happens between these two trees, the tree in Genesis 3 and the tree in Revelation 22? Let me just tell you, first of all, God kicks them out of the garden, but that is so important because prior to that, he walked with them. He talked with them. He literally was in this intimate relation with them, but when sin came into the picture, God and man had a gap, a a Grand Canyon kind of gap that couldn't be overcome. And so God removed himself, but he keeps coming near. And if I could summarize the entire Bible for you, I would do it in those words. God keeps coming near. And so you start in Abraham just a little bit after the flood in the book of Genesis. God goes to a man named Abraham and says, I'm going to make you the father of many, many nations. And through you, all nations will be blessed. And God begins a process in Abraham that would lead us eventually to Jesus. And as Abram has Isaac Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel. What happens is those sons end up as slaves in Egypt. And so hundreds of years later, God raises up another prophet by the name Moses, and he says, Moses, I have been completely engaged. See, most of the time we think God is disengaged from our lives. He's distant. He's not paying attention. He must not care because things aren't going well, and God is fully engaged. And he says to Moses in the book of Exodus, I have seen, and I have heard, and I'm listening, and I'm paying attention and I'm ready to do something about it. And so God sends Moses and he frees the Israelites from slavery. And we know that Moses going and freeing from slavery is supposed to point us to Jesus who comes and frees us from slavery to sin. But then God takes the Israelites out into the desert and he literally meets with Moses. First, he meets them up on Mount Sinai and there's lightning and there's thunder and there's all this fascinating stuff going on. And in that moment, he begins to uh, transform his people through Moses. Moses comes down off the mountain and his face shines like lightning. And then he develops this thing called the tabernacle. It's this tent of meeting. And Moses goes into this tent and God meets with Moses there. And later, uh, Aaron is appointed as the high priest, and they develop a system whereby uh, God is in this holy of holies place, and Aaron is the only one. You can read about this, Leviticus 16. Aaron is the only one allowed into the presence of God. So I want you to see this. In the garden, everyone, of course, it's only Adam and Eve, everyone's allowed to be in the presence of God, but sin separated us from God. 
And so God now comes near to Abraham, but only in moments, and he goes away. And he comes near to Moses, but only in moments. And he there now lives in a tent after a while. And now um, the high priest is allowed in, Aaron's allowed in, but only one time a year. And God keeps coming near, but there's this barrier. And the way that the Holy of Holies was set up is it was a perfect square with a thick curtain in front of it. And the high priest could only go in on that one day, the Day of Atonement, and only then after lots and lots of sacrifices and purification rites. The Israelites were so afraid the high priest wouldn't be right with God, later on they'd tie a string around his foot and just in case he died in there because God decided to destroy him, they could yank his body out. And this is fascinating. You're like, what in the world does any of this have to do with heaven? This is, this is everything about heaven. Next, we get to a king named David and later his son Solomon. And they really go hand in hand because Solomon carries out the plans that God gave to David to build a temple. And in that temple, we see a permanent holy of holies in there. It's that place that only the high priest could go. Only once a year, only one person could go into the presence of God. And then our Savior showed up. You see, God's been on this plan of redemption between these two trees for a long time at that point. He's met with humanity in small moments and glimpses and powerful statements through prophets. But Jesus was a game changer. Here's what John, the guy who wrote Revelation, he says this in John 1, 14. So the word, that's Jesus, became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This phrase here, leave this up. So the word became human. That phrase literally in the Greek means he came and built a tent. Or if you were to take it into Hebrew context, you'd say he came and tabernacled among us. And the tabernacle was the name for the tent of meeting back in Exodus. John doesn't want us to miss what's going on in redemptive history here. No longer is just one man going to meet with God on your behalf. Now you're going to meet with God. You. You. But there's even a brokenness even in this plan. The brokenness is this. Jesus is one. He met with hundreds, even thousands of people, but there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people who never got to meet with him. This is why when Jesus gets to John 14, 15, 16, he says to the disciples, I got to get out of here. It's better for you if I get out of here. And, and the disciples go, what do you mean? Where are you going to go? We'll follow you wherever you go. And he's like, no, you can't go where I'm going. What, what do you mean we can't go? You can't go where I'm going and trust me, it's better. How can it be better? Because I'm going to send one after me. What do you mean you're sending one after you? He's the paraclete. He's the counselor. He's the encourager. He's the Holy Spirit. And what the disciples didn't know then, we understand now. God, the redemptive history between these two trees, the tree in the end and the trees, or the trees in the beginning and the trees in the end, God was doing something. He keeps pursuing, he keeps pursuing, he keeps coming after you in your brokenness, in your pain, in your sin, generation after generation after generation, unfolding redemptive history. And now, through the power of what we call the Holy Spirit, God is no longer with us like through Jesus, he's now in us. It's that next step in the plan. It's that now we literally have heaven inside us right here, right now. But this is the hard part. 
See, one of the things as we dig into what is heaven, one of the things you have to know is we live in the land of the already and the not yet. Now, here's what that means. For those of you who love Jesus and you've surrendered your lives to him, you've united with him in baptism, you've committed to following him, for those of you who've done that, you have heaven in you right now. But the world has not fully been redeemed. So we live in the pain and the brokenness of the not yet. But that doesn't take away from your confidence of the already. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 19. He says, all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. See, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. And let me just stop before I keep reading. That's the earth and creation saying, man, we so want to meet your needs. We so want to do what we were created to do. But unfortunately, y'all are a bunch of idiots, that's creation talking, and we're stuck. You ever wonder why this world, while so beautiful and powerful, is so chaotic and out of control? It's because creation is not working the way God created it to because sin has marred it. Verse 22, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And we believers also groan. You hear that? Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. We live in the land of the already and the not yet. So now let's take a look at the not yet. Revelation 21, verse 1 and 2. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And the sea was also gone. Now, before I go on, I'll just say this, move on real quick. The sea was chaotic in the ancient world. You couldn't control it. It was unpredictable. And many, many, many people died while at sea. So the sea was a terrifying place. This is John's way of saying, in that new heaven, in that new earth, you won't need to be terrified anymore of creation itself. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I want you to hang on to this real quick. I saw the holy city. This is a parenthetic. I can't remember the name for it. Uh, there's a word for this in English. He's giving you a thought. He's clarifying. This is the holy city. What is it? It's the new Jerusalem, but he goes on further. It's coming down from heaven like a what? Like a bride. You know, in the book of Revelation, there's only one time that bride is used negatively. All the other times, I can't remember if it's four out of five or five out of six times, the word bride is used to describe someone, not something. Do you know who the someone is? The church. What exactly is coming down out of heaven? Hang on to that for a second. Dr. Shane Wood, whose grandmother goes here, he's been so helpful to me. He says this, in Revelation, 
The phrase great city is always associated with something negative, like Babylon. However, the phrase holy city, like we just saw there, the phrase holy city is always associated with the church. So now go back to Revelation 21, verse 2, and I saw the holy city. So is it possible, and I'm not saying that heaven isn't a real place. I hope I will prove that it is a real place. But is it possible that what we have interpreted as this beautiful city that John is about to describe is not really a city at all? It's a people. Think about it. When I say the church on the corner of 10th and Dan Jones, am I referring to this brick and mortar? What am I referring to? You, the church. So let's ask this question. What exactly is heaven then? I think Revelation will answer this for us. Take a look. Revelation 21, verse 3, the next verse. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. So what is heaven? It's the place where God makes his home. And I would say makes his home again. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. If nothing else, get this. What is heaven? It's God with us in a fully restored, paradise now redeemed, paradise found kind of way. It's everything that God had pictured originally and better. Look at more of what it says. Verse five, no, four, sorry. Verse four, he, this is God, will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. And all these things are gone for how long? Come on now, gone for how long? Forever. It brings up fascinating questions, ones I don't have time to dig into. Other theologians have dug into them already. But you need to know this. Imagine this. Okay, so I'm a married man, happily married. Be 17 years this year. I'm getting older all the time. Anyway, imagine you're at a restaurant. Men, husbands. And your phone rings, and you hand the phone to your wife, and it's bad news. I don't even know what it is, but she just starts crying. And your waiter walks by, and he says, oh, baby, it's all right. Cheer up. And he gives her a hug, and he starts to wipe the tears from her eyes. As there a little bit of you goes, <clears throat> excuse me, that's mine. Not in a, like, I own you kind of way, but a, get your hand off my wife kind of way. And there's a reason. Because when you're touching somebody else's face and you're wiping the tears from their eyes, it's a sign of intimacy and proximity and love. And sorry, as a husband, you better have a really, really, really approved close relationship with my wife to be able to touch those tears. And God is trying to let us know in very intimate terms what heaven is above anything else. It's not us sitting around in white outfits singing kumbaya for eternity or even holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty for eternity. It's intimacy. It's paradise restored. It's taking us back to that place where sin and brokenness and lies and deceit and manipulation is no longer being a barrier between us and God. He is with us and he is in us. He is in our midst in all the ways that we need him to be and his literal hands will wipe those tears away and remove them from us. Man, if nothing else we learn about heaven today is powerful, that one thing ought to make you fall to your knees and cry out, come Lord Jesus so that no more babies have to die, so that no more loved ones have to be murdered, so nobody else has to have cancer, 
so I don't have to watch people I love marriages fall apart because they're too hard-hearted and stubborn. People don't have to be abused and raped anymore. Come, wipe away my tears. Look at verse 5. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. If you get bored later and you want to look this up, just look up how many times the Bible says, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, or they will be my children. You look it up. He's often talking about Israel in the Old Testament, but that's because he's talking about something bigger than a physical people. He's talking about a spiritual group of people who love him. Now, there's something I want you to get here. See, there the word new is used over and over and over again. This new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, a new creation. I am making all things, say it with me, new. But there are two Greek words for new. The first one is the Greek word neos. And this is like technical definitions, but this is new in time. This would be like if you get a brand new car, it literally just came off the assembly line, and there it is. It's new. It's never been owned. It's never even existed, but now it does. When God in Genesis made the world and the universe and everything, he made it ex nihilo or nihilo. He made it out of nothing. He made it neos, brand new. However, there's another word for new in Greek, and that is kainos. And this is not new in time like here, but new as to the former quality. You're like, I know. These are dictionary definitions, all right? But especially when it's compared to the old thing. This would be like you taking a used car, fully restoring it, completely making it over, and then giving it back to its owner. This would be like, see, I drive a 2005 Ford Focus wagon. It is an awesome car. Sorry, I think I just lied in front of my church. I apologize. I didn't mean to do that. But it's awesome because it's my car. And man, it's got dents and dings and 150-something thousand miles. And man, I'd love it if somebody was a mechanic wanted to take it and, you know, make it not rattle anymore and clean it up and take all the dents and the dings and make it shine and beautiful. Again, it's a Ford Focus. There's only so much you could do to it. <laughs> but that would be this word. And in every situation here in Revelation chapter 21, that's the word that's used. This is an important understanding of what heaven will be like. Because God isn't destroying all the planets and the stars and the earth in you and then birthing a new universe. God is restoring the old. So this changes things. This is huge. And look, I realize some of you, I just blew your mind and everything you've ever been taught or thought in the app which links, I think, point you to the website. If you go to the website, I've got tons of books, sermons, resources, things you can read and study further. I don't have time to dig into it deeper. But what God is doing is he's purifying this earth to bring something better. So even if you go to those passages, say in Thessalonians and in Peter, where it talks about fire coming, and you go, well, see, he's going to burn everything up. That word used there to describe fire is the same word that's used to describe precious metals when they're put into the fire, and the dross is cleaned away, and what you have left is the pure thing. It's the same analogy. Whatever that said fire is and whatever it will mean at the end times, what's going to happen is God's going to purify this earth, these heavens, and this will be heaven related here. It will exist here. In fact, if you answer this question, so let's just talk about where is heaven? Where is heaven? 
I love the way Hank Hanegraaff answers this one. He says this, is it up there somewhere, a place made of jasper with pearly gates and a street of pure gold? Heavens, no. The language is a heavenly condescension to our earthly inadequacies. Revelation's descriptions are not intended to communicate what heaven looks like any more than hair white like wool or white as snow is intended to tell us what Jesus looks like. Rather, such descriptions are intended to communicate what heaven is like. Just like the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, the golden lampstands, which are the churches, fine linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints, so the metaphors describe the heavenly city magnify a far more majestic and glorious reality. So let's ask this question and answer it quickly, as quickly as I can. What happens when I die? Well, each of you can only answer that for yourselves, but here's what God's Word reveals. For the unbeliever, for those in this room who've never surrendered to Jesus Christ, the one who does not surrender their life to Christ and love Him are cast into hell. What I don't have time to dig into, but many other authors have, uh, is so what happens to my loved ones? My brief, brief, brief answer for you, if you have a father, a son, a mother, a friend who did not love Jesus and died, my brief answer for you is this. Revelation is consistent that God is just and trustworthy and true and faithful and loving and kind. I will not allow you to have an excuse that anybody could get to heaven apart from Jesus. I can only tell you that the one who's making the decision is making the right one. And you can rest in that if you love him because you can trust he will only make the right one. Revelation 20, 14 to 15 says this, Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death, the one I talked to you about from Genesis. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So, this was not last week's message. This is this week's message. What about the believer? It's fascinating stuff right here. Believer, believer, you will immediately go into the presence of Almighty God. This is what theologians like to call the intermediate state. That is a word that theologians have made up. You won't find it in the Bible. The intermediate state, I love the way J.I. Packer describes it. He says this. To be resurrected for the life of heaven is the true Christian hope. As life in the intermediate or interim state between death and resurrection is better than the life in this world that preceded it, so the life of resurrection will be better still. It will, in fact, be best. And this is what God has in store for all his children. Hallelujah, J.I. Packer says. Paul, in the Bible, he says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave the earthly body, we will have a house in heaven. Now, don't get hung up on house language. God isn't going to build you a mansion. Nowhere does the Bible seem to teach that. An eternal body, that's the house he's talking about, made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. In other words, what Paul is saying is heaven is not a spiritual, just simply spiritual location. It is a real physical location. And I just blew some of your minds, didn't I? 
Verse 4, while we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. And you're like, I don't even know what the world is talking about anymore. What Paul is trying to get to is this. At the moment of your last breath, believer, what happens is you go into a, an intermediate state. You are in the presence of God. You are whatever exactly that place looks like. It is not called purgatory. You are not changing directions like, well, I wasn't sure, and then I did a bunch of good things on earth so that my grandpa could get into heaven. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. Although my grandma, who's Catholic, keeps sending me gift cards every once in a while, and I'm kind of thankful she's Catholic, it has nothing to do with my grandfather getting into heaven. Some of you didn't think that was as funny as I do. So moving on. Anyway, N.T. Wright says it like this. The early Christians hold firmly to a two-step belief about the future. First, death and whatever lies immediately beyond. And second, a new bodily existence in a newly remade world. And I'll say this before I dream a little. Hank Hanegraaff says it this way, our eternal bodies are numerically identical to the bodies we now possess. There's a one-to-one -one correlation, he's saying. As Christ rose in the same physical body which he died, so too we will be raised in the same physical body in which we die. In other words, our resurrection body is not a second temporary body, rather it is our present body transformed. And I know, your brains hurt. Mine do too. But let me just make it as clear as I can. Jesus is the prototype. The perfect prototype. It's not going to be changed. He's the prototype. So when Jesus dies on the cross, raised from the dead, he literally dies physically, and he literally raises physically, not spiritually. But it's different. How do I know? Well, for one, he goes to Thomas. Remember, doubting Thomas. Even if you're new here, you've heard this story, right? And he says to Thomas, Thomas, I know you're having a hard time believing. Why don't you come up and touch these holes in my hands or in my wrist, whichever it was. Go ahead, touch them. Well, how can you touch a spirit? You can't. Why? Because he's a physical body. John 21, we'll talk about this more on Easter, I believe. Uh, Jesus is sitting on the beach and he's eating fish. You ever seen a spirit eat fish? Well, maybe some of you have, but you needed to lay off some of those other drugs. But... You ever see a spirit eat fish? No. Why? Because Jesus has a physical body. Jesus is the prototype. But also, by the way, we see Jesus do crazy things. He kind of appears and disappears out of nowhere. In fact, at one point, he's walking along with two men, and he kind of shows up out of nowhere, and then when they're done talking, he literally goes from their presence, and they don't know how to explain it. How about this? Jesus literally walks through a wall in the Gospels. I know some of you are like, okay, see, I was with you and I was wondering about this Jesus thing. Now you just totally made me think that this whole thing is made up. Maybe, maybe you want to believe the rest of your life that Jesus just made all this up. New Testament writers made all this up. I would only ask you, how do you explain the resurrection of Jesus apart from the testimony of these men who saw it? They know how crazy all this sounds and they wrote it anyway. Think about that. Because they saw it. So we should expect that our heavenly bodies, like Jesus, in a physical world, will be similar, whatever that means. So let's for a minute enter into a dream. Let's enter into um, just imagining, okay? From here on out, it's half biblical, half speculation, half fun, all right? What will we do in heaven? It's a great question. Number one, we will spend eternity exploring and worshiping our infinite creator, God. 
Think about this. The Bible teaches us that God is infinite and eternal. You know what that means? For the rest of eternity, you will be learning about him, and you'll never really figure it all out. And that's not a confusing thing. See, don't think on the other side of your last breath, it's like, man, I got all these questions, God. You better answer them. See, you're going to spend eternity learning the depths of God's mercy and love and power and knowledge and wisdom. And every day you learn more, you'll never be any closer to the end of it. And that shouldn't scare you. That should excite you, especially those of you who are learners. You're like, I'm going to literally spend the rest of my life learning about this infinite God. Yep. In fact, I love the way Hank Hanegraaff says this. Imagine exploring the depths of God's love, wisdom, and holiness. Imagine forever growing in our capacities to fathom his immensity, immutability, and incomprehensibility. And to top it off, the more we come to know him, the more there will be to know. How about this one? Number two. We will spend eternity getting to know each other. Okay, so however many people there are in heaven, I can't tell you. Whatever the billion are or billions there are, I don't know. But imagine, imagine getting to know every single one of them for the depths of all who they are without dishonesty, mistrust, brokenness, deception, lies, and past hurts getting in the way. Could you imagine? When was the last time, because I hear this all the time, when was the last time you said to yourself, man, I just desperately want a friend, a friend who will love me for who I really am, not judge me, but love me enough to tell me what I need to hear. No matter how hard you try, you can't find that friend. Imagine an eternity full of them, and now you have forever to get to know them. I love the way Hank, again, says this in his book. Imagine being able to love another human being without even a tinge of selfishness. I wish my wife had a husband that would do that. <laughs> Imagine appreciating, no reveling in the exalted capacities and station that God bestows on another without so much as a modicum of jealousy. Imagine finding a fantastic guitarist. I play guitar and I'm at best a hack. Imagine just sitting there going, dude, would you just play for like a month? I just want to listen to you and not being jealous of his ability, but just enjoying it. Imagine me having eternity to preach a sermon. I know for some of you that sounds like hell. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Number three, we will spend eternity, we will spend eternity exploring and learning about God's creation. Guys, I realize some of this is speculative, but I don't believe it's all speculative. I believe I can make a good biblical argument. I just am dreaming a little bit here. But imagine the entire universe being opened up to you. Think about this for a minute. There are planets and stars that we can't even comprehend. We can't even build a telescope big enough to see them. What's the point? If it's so far out there that we can't even see that it exists, but our science tells us that it exists, then it's out there somewhere. Why? Maybe because in the next chapter in the story, we get to go. I don't know about you, but I think that'd be pretty amazing. Imagine... Traveling the depths of the oceans that you can't even get a camera down to see. Think about it. If we are the apex of God's creation and God gave sight uh, to um, something that has really good sight, like eagles. I can't think of anything. I was trying to blank. Or noses, like smell to dogs, or like the ability to swim in water like dolphins. What if, what if, and I can't prove this, but what if in heaven we have the ability to do all of those things? What if all of those were simply a glimpse of the eternity to come? I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty amazing. How about this one, the last one, number four? 
we will spend eternity working for the glory of God, unhimited by sin and toil. Now you may say, what? That doesn't sound like heaven. <laughs> but see, before Adam and Eve sinned, Adam had to work. Adam was to name all the animals. He was given a garden to care for. Work wasn't a byproduct of sin. Hard, laborious, stressful work was a byproduct of sin. Imagine all of the stress removed. Imagine your best day, your best project, your best accomplishment ever. Imagine that for eternity. And now, remember, mom and dad, when your child comes to you and says, hey, can you stop working and just play ball with me? And you say, I can't, honey. I don't have time. Imagine, and again, I realize it's a whole different setup in heaven, but imagine looking at your family, your friends, and your loved one and saying, hey, why not go play baseball for 100 years? We've got forever. Sounds pretty glorious, doesn't it? So let's answer this question. How do I get there? Well, number one, you need to realize that you are in the middle of a very real spiritual battle. Your enemy, Satan, he wants to destroy you. He hates you. Number two, you need to accept that you need a savior. You can't get to God on your own. Until you get to that place of realizing that you are desperately in need of one to redeem you, you will never find yourself in heaven because you'll keep trying to figure it out on your own. Number three, you need to put your trust for salvation in the hands of Jesus Christ as both, this is important, your Savior and your Lord. It's both. What that means is you aren't going to save yourself anymore. You're going to let him do it, and he's going to be your master. So however he tells you to live, you're going to live, even if it's hard, even if it doesn't make sense, even if you don't like it, you're going to let him dictate the rules. And then number four, you're going to choose to become one with him in baptism through immersion. I'm not saying other forms aren't adequate, but here at Kingsway, that's all we practice. Next week, we're going to have a big old whiteout party. Please, please, please come dressed in white. We'll have a white t-shirt for those of you who uh, didn't bring one for your guests who come with you. We'll have some white t-shirts available. We're only bringing like 500, okay? So please don't everybody count on us to provide one. Or we'll have a half whiteout party, and it just won't have the same effect. Wear a white sweater if they make those. Wear a white button-up. Wear a white coat. Tell your husbands you have to go buy a new outfit and Matt told you. It's okay. <laughs> but come wearing white. Right now we have over 20 people signed up to be united with Christ in baptism. We've got classes today, later this week, for people who are wrestling with it. Maybe it's your turn also to be united with him. I'm going to close with Revelation here, uh, 21 and 27. And I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I hope I've painted even just a glimpse of a picture of heaven, one that whets your appetite. And i got to tell you, it's far better than everything you've ever experienced here. Please don't leave today without making a decision for what you will do with Jesus. What the rest of us are going to do right now is I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our communion servers. I'm going to have them go ahead and leave the room to prepare that. And the rest of us are just going to celebrate this glorious gift that God gave us. Communion is a celebration of the life to come. So as you take this bread and as you take this juice, those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, I just want you to take it and say, thank you, God. This is a foretaste of heaven where we are literally practicing drinking the body and the blood. It's not literal the body and the blood. We're practicing what we will do in eternity in heaven, where we'll be in his presence, and his presence will be in us, and it will be glorious. 
For those of you who are far from God and you don't understand this communion thing, it's okay. Take this time to just pray and maybe talk to God about something you need to deal with with him. And Red will come out and uh, lead us in a song. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for heaven. I thank you that earth is just a, a glimpse and that the Holy Spirit is a foretaste of the good to come. Thank you, God, that you will make good on all your promises. Lord, there are lots of questions left unanswered, questions that need to be asked, like uh, what happened to a, uh, my baby who died in the womb? Or God, what happened to my pets? Will they be there with me? Or God, what about my friend? And this I know, we're going to go to the place where everything is perfect, and we are in the presence of perfection. And God, I know that you will make good on all your promises for those who believe. Give us the faith to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.